title of the talk is Managing Recurrent Infections with Multidrug Organisms in the Pediatric Urology Patient. Is Antimicrobial Stewardship Even Possible? Um, the short answer is yes, and in fact, it, it has to be possible um, because of where we're headed. My disclosures are fairly limited. I've got some funding from Pfizer to study antimicrobial stewardship at the pediatric hospital. The objectives of the talk. Uh, the participants will be able to define antimicrobial stewardship, identify an antibiotic strategy to manage pediatric urology patients with recurrent MDRO infections, and to list clinical situations where the oral antibiotic phosphomycin can be useful. But the actual take-home messages that I want to leave you with, the, um, the pithy maxims, are the following. A rising tide lifts all boats. Shorter is better, also known as less is more. And antibiotic stewardship is microbiome stewardship. Uh, I apologize if these sound a bit Orwellian, but I'm, I'm hoping that uh, they will kind of stick in your mind as, uh, as guideposts in our kind of shared attempts at stewardship. So as we know, uh, gram-negative resistance continues to rise in our patients, uh, in the United States, and, and worldwide. And it seems that each week or each month there is a new headline um, proclaiming another kind of pre-apocalyptic uh, infectious disease event. And in fact, I think it was within the last couple weeks that there was a report of a fatal infection in Nevada uh, experienced by a woman who had, um, you know, she had traveled or, or emigrated from India, but she um, became septic with a Klebsiella pneumoniae that carried this New Delhi metallobetalactamase and was in fact resistant to all our antibiotics. So <clears throat> the sky seems to keep falling on us bit by bit. Um, and you know, we're kind of slowly, slowly boiling uh, in this in this water as resistance kind of spreads all around us. And so that's the first, the first point is that this is uh, um, a global phenomenon. It's happening worldwide, but it's also happening here. In some cases, the forms of resistance may be homegrown here in the United States through some of our practices. They may be uh, uh, born elsewhere because of particular conditions in other countries. But every healthcare system uh, has its own special way of using antibiotics, and really every um, society, every country has its own way of using antibiotics, and these different practices lead to different types of antibiotic threat. But the fact is, of course, the world is getting smaller and smaller each day, uh, in a way. Um, I think we've always been connected. Uh, there has always been a rising tide that lifts all of us, but as far as antibiotic resistance goes, we know that these kind of more devastating um, and terrifying forms of multi-drug resistance seem to be occurring with increasing frequency, certainly in the headlines, but I think for many of us in our actual clinical experience. 
and running counter to that trend of increase uh, has been a well-documented decrease in the development of new antibiotics. Um, in the first several decades of the antibiotic miracle over the 20th century, uh, as soon as a new drug was introduced and resistance would, would pop up to that specific drug within a matter of five years, 10 years, and then spread, we were able to uh, discover our way out with new agents, new representatives of penicillins, encephalosporins, and then new classes of antibiotics altogether, carbapenems, aminoglycosides, fluoroquinolones. Uh, but it appears that either or both, we have identified serendipitously all the lowest hanging fruit. We've gone and tested every kind of soil mold uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's clear that antibiotics are no longer where the money is, and so that the incentives for drug discovery have really dried up uh, as big pharmaceutical companies are pursuing drugs that people take not for five days, seven days, 14 days, but rather for decades and for a lifetime. <coughs> And so that leaves us at a kind of critical juncture into which uh, uh, springs the notion of antimicrobial stewardship, which may be our last best hope. Uh, in 2007, the Infectious Disease Society issued this document, which was kind of codifying some notions that had already been circulating for some time. And I would say that uh, in pediatrics, we can say with some pride that you know, uh, the AAP had been issuing guidelines and uh, support documents to help us with what was initially being called judicious antimicrobial prescribing. And that was something that we were meant to undertake as prescribers at the individual practitioner level. But stewardship kind of takes that to the next step and thinks about entire populations of patients, entire populations of prescribers. Uh, and thinks about things at the organization level, the hospital level, the clinic level, the healthcare system level, such that uh, it's more than just the individual's experience, uh, our own experience as prescribers. Uh, we're, we're not anymore uh, uh, left to our own devices to say whether or not we think we're doing a good job with stewardship, because the fact is we, we probably aren't. And in fact, we probably can't uh, as individuals because of the way we practice. Let's see if I can uh, unpack that statement a little bit. But antimicrobial stewardship really is uh, it's a, it's a bundle of interventions. It's really not any one thing. It's a multidisciplinary effort uh, and, and is undertaken primarily by pharmacists and infectious disease physicians within a healthcare system, undertaking lots of different coordinated interventions that are designed to improve and measure the appropriate use of antimicrobial agents by promoting selection of the optimal antimicrobial drug regimen that includes dosing, duration of therapy, and rapid administration. In other words, the goal of stewardship is to get patients the right antibiotic at the right dose at the right time and for the right duration. And to be clear, that doesn't always mean less or smaller or shorter. <clears throat> Sometimes that means more. Sometimes that does mean longer. But it's really about trying to find out 
and to keep questioning what is optimal. So the 2007 stewardship guiding document uh, that I just showed you has now given way um, almost eight years later to these core elements that have been codified by the Centers for Disease Control. Because now it's, it's not just a, um, you know, a good idea, it actually seems really imperative and critical as we hear these reports about, again, apocalyptic multi-drug resistance spreading across the globe with our um, less than robust, less than vigorous pipeline of new drugs. So, you know, the World Health Organization and, f and federal governments across the globe recognize resistance as a problem. And so this is part of the, the program of action that we've taken federally is to say, what can we do in our hospitals uh, to perform stewardship? And what really is it? Um, in effect, as I said, it's systems and different interventions that are trying to help all of us do the right thing for our patients. Uh, and stewardship in a way is sort of a, a, a secondary uh, clinical support system to help practitioners at the front lines do their best work for patients. Knowing that a lot of the work that we do, whether it's in a room, in a clinic, with a sick child and a tired parent, or whether it's in you know, the intensive care unit with a, a, a family that is is terrified. We as practitioners are in these very human experiences and we feel the stress and the anxiety that our families feel. And one of the things that we tend to reach for to, to ward off um, the things that we fear the most are of course antibiotics. So stewardship is that kind of more objective and by definition less involved pair of eyes to support this antibiotic decision making. And for stewardship to work, of course, the, the hospital really needs to be committed to it, to the notion that there can be uh, a support system that may make, hopefully, uh, helpful recommendations to prescribers and caregivers uh, that has some credence, that has support, that has backing, that isn't simply uh, seen as uh, an infringement on our autonomy as clinicians and caregivers. But the other, the other part, I think, um, that, that's really critical to stewardship is, is tracking, is having data so that it's not about, well, I did my best in this single encounter, because we all do our best time and time again. And I think we are in a place where antibiotics have been such a miracle that um, we are victims of their success, in part by seeing how beautifully they work and seeing primarily antibiotics as a, as a almost unmitigated good. So the tracking function is intrinsic to every stewardship codification. Every list has tracking. Um, so that we can all look at a shared metric and see where we can do better. It seemed pretty straightforward to, uh, relatively, to define stewardship in the hospital, but it has been less so in the outpatient setting. 
In the outpatient setting, of course, is where most of the antibiotic prescribing happens by volume. Probably somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of antibiotic prescribing is actually in the outpatient setting, at least in the United States. And so now some of these same core elements that we were doing inpatient are now being asked uh, in the outpatient setting. And I would call your attention again to tracking and reporting because we all believe we do our best and we're all aware of the dangers of overprescribing. But the fact of our engagement with our patients and our desire not to have bad things happen on our watch leads us to tend to use over use antibiotic in ways that um, I think we're starting to see some very dire consequences from. So stewardship is now becoming the law of the land. Um, these ideas have been circulating, as I said, uh, probably since the, the mid-90s, notions about judicious antibiotic use and oversight and managing formularies with, with pre-approval, having to call someone even in the middle of the night to get approval for certain big gun antibiotics. But now stewardship is poised again to become uh, a condition of requirement for CMS participation, which means that if you want to be paid as a hospital for Medicare and Medicaid patients, you need to have a stewardship program that meets these specific criteria. Stewardship has always been a good idea. Now it will be a good idea that's required. Uh, and that was from Arjun Srinivasan, who is sort of the, the point person for stewardship at the CDC. So as clinicians and caregivers, we are steeped in science. We are steeped in evidence. But the fact is, when we care for our patients, we are relating to them as human beings. And there's one thing that we have learned about the study of the brain is that there are uh, systems in place to help us experience what other people experience. And so we get involved in the drama of patient illnesses. And antibiotics are like a fire to ward off things that we can't see, to try and create some light in the darkness. So this editorial was published uh, over the summer in JAMA Archives Internal Medicine by Brad Spelberg, who is uh, one of the more outspoken and, and sometimes um, outspoken thought leaders in <coughs> antimicrobial stewardship. And uh, I think this editorial is really worth having a look at. It's a very short read, um, but I'll see if I can entice you. It opens. In AD 321, Roman Emperor Constantine the Great codified that there would be seven days in a week. Thus, <clears throat> we tend to treat infections in seven-day intervals. Seven to 10, 10 to 14, 14 to 21. And he goes back to uh, the earliest days of, of antibiotic therapy which would be the time when Dr. Markowitz was, was practicing. So this is the 40s and the 50s where this new miracle uh, was becoming more and more a part of routine practice. And some of the notions that were being considered at that time have been foundational to how we use them today and how we think about them. 
Physicians considered pioneers of penicillin customized the duration of therapy depending on the patient's response and found that a range of one and a half to four days of therapy for pneumonia resulted in high cure rates. And the modern concept that we should continue treating bacterial infections past the time when signs and symptoms have been resolved can be traced back to 1945. And so now we've continued forward with this notion of treating beyond symptom resolution out to a seven day, a 10 day, some number that has this sort of uh, satisfactory features. And these practices are now kind of our unquestioned dogma. And at the risk of being um, tedious, I, I want to spell this out because I think um, we're on the cusp of being in, in a situation that's so dire that we really have no choice but to question some of our, some of our dogmas. And it's very uncomfortable. And it will take us some uncomfortable places. And I, I have to say, um, to be quite honest, that I expect that our efforts at stewardship at less is more will eventually result in bad outcomes. There will be deaths as we try and be more stewardly. I think it's inevitable um, that there will be consequences of underutilization just as we're now kind of reaping some of the consequences of overutilization. But I want to, I want to add that um, Dr. Spellberg continues, there is no evidence that taking antibiotics beyond the point at which a patient's symptoms are resolved reduces antibiotic resistance. And this is a key dogma that is still part of um, the, the pantheon of medical truths, right? We say it. And I think I still, to some extent, believe it. You have to take your antibiotics until they're gone. You have to take your antibiotics as they've been prescribed by your doctor. And I think what we're looking at is changing how we prescribe so that we can take into account some of the ill consequences of treating an infection with antibiotics for longer than the patient has symptoms because it does increase selective pressure and drives antibiotic resistance in places in the body other than where the patient was infected. So the editorial features this table which has evidence uh, citations for a number of uh, key common diagnoses showing where short-term antibiotic therapy regimens have shown to be as effective as the conventional longer term. And that may be community-acquired pneumonia, three to five days as opposed to seven to 10, pyelonephritis for five to seven as opposed to 10 to 14, and so on. And again, I think as we move towards trying to implement some of these concepts, it will take baby steps. It will take treating one infection on the shorter end, where you may in the, in the past have treated on the longer end, and it's extremely uncomfortable. Again, I think it's the fact that we are relating as human beings that activates our limbic system in how we practice. Uh, these are emotional as much as intellectual decisions. We have met the enemy, and he is us. So I'd like to discuss a case, 
and um, spend the remainder of our time trying to find uh, notions of stewardship in one of the more complicated types of uh, infection that I see in my practice at an academic center. The reason for visit for this patient was recurrent urinary tract infections with E. coli. And this is uh, a uh, young adult that I saw several years ago, Caucasian female, who was born with bladder extrophy. The bladder was open uh, through the abdominal wall. And she came to me already with a remarkably complex surgical history with some 20 uh, at least procedures um, of the abdomen and of the general urinary tract most recently with reconfiguration of the bladder, including an ileal uh, intestinal augmentation of the bladder to increase capacity. She was being cared for at the time by a doctor expert uh, of the Department of Urology, and she had undergone a Mitrofenoff procedure, which I will show you in just a second if that's not familiar. And she um, catheterized her bladder every two hours during uh, waking hours. She had a long-standing history of UTI, primarily with E. coli, but the bugs had had varying susceptibility patterns over time, so she had seen a lot of infections, a lot of symptoms, a lot of discomfort, a lot of misery, and hence had seen a lot of antibiotics. Usually, her infections are, are successfully treated. The antibiotics work for a time, but then within three or four days after stopping, the infections would typically come back. So her most recent infection, when I first saw her over 10 years ago, uh, had begun eight days previously. It was called her positive for E. coli, and she was given uh, a singular dose of imipenem intramuscularly, once a day for four days, and was getting a, a third-generation cephalosporin by mouth. She was feeling better. Again, the antibiotics worked um, and took away the foul-smelling urine, the right flank pain, the headaches, the tiredness the misery, um, but she still was having some right flank pain the day I saw her. So the Mitrofenoff channel procedure um, that she had undergone is something that I would say, uh, you know, a third uh, or more of the patients that we now see at Children's as part of a joint clinic between infectious diseases and urology um, for patients who have recurrent multi-drug resistant organisms, about a third of them have, this, have had this Mitrofenoff procedure. And this is a way to uh, void the bladder uh, without doing urethral in and out catheterization. And it involves mobilizing the appendix, uh, ideally, although other tissues can be used, along with the blood supply, and putting the blind end through the wall of the bladder, so that sort of a valve is formed there, and then mobilizing the, the proximal end of the appendix to the belly button or to another location uh, that's cosmetically uh, generally below the, the pant line in the lower abdomen. And so the patient then catheterizes through this, this channel with a healthy pink stoma here into the bladder every two, every four, every six hours. And they may have uh, a catheter in overnight to promote overnight drainage. So I was only a few years out of my ED fellowship when I, when I saw this patient. 
and uh, I didn't realize that I was, you know, facing what I think um, something like what what Dr. Markowitz faced. You see one patient that, unbeknownst to you at the time, will kind of change your your career, um, and that's what this patient has done. And she's taught me most of what I know about multi-drug resistant organisms and recurrent infections. So her antibiotics work until they're stopped. And she comes uh, to the clinic looking for relief from antibiotics, from all this madness, because she's worried about the effect of antibiotics on her system and on her overall health. The antibiotics make her tired, uh, and in general, she's worried about health effects. So this is really one of the, the main themes in the, the patient and the family with the child with recurrent infections is they want to get away from antibiotics. As much as they want relief from infections, there is this mounting, growing dread and anxiety about the impact of antibiotics and, quote, um, whether my child will become resistant to the antibiotics which is a notion that when I initially heard it, I, I wanted to say, well, you understand, don't you, that, that your, your child won't become resistant to the antibiotics. It's, it's the bacteria as though that was some reassurance. And in fact, I actually think about it differently. And uh, what, what uh, Bennett says about, uh, you know, Dr. Markowitz listened to the patient and learned something. You know, imagine that. I think, uh, the, the humility that comes with facing recurrent infections is really kind of the, the greatest teacher. And I think it's right, um, because, not to sound overly dramatic, but I think um, we are, in part, our microbiome, or our microbiome is us, or it's certainly a part of us, or in a way that, you know, George Martin was an important part of the Beatles. Uh, you know, not, not a canonical beetle, but, you know, an, an important British rock group. <laughs> um, but really, the, the intestinal microbiome is like an organ, right? It's involved in nutrition, in digestion, and of course, it's involved in the immune system, both in teaching the immune system what is us versus what is them, um, but also in, in occupying a space or a niche with a diverse flora that keeps invaders from coming in. So yes, I believe that patients can become resistant to antibiotics because their microbiome can house resistant organisms. The urologist that referred this patient to me, Dr. Expert, was asking about some research at the time that was provocative and that you may hear about. And I still can't say to this day whether what I'm about to show you is true but it certainly at times seems like it's true. Do bacteria live in the bladder? Do bacteria specifically live inside the bladder wall? Because certain patients uh, in this population, the urology patient with recurrent multidrug resistant organisms, some of them will just have this monotonous microbiology, which in a way makes things simpler to think about in terms of how you want to pick your antibiotics, particularly if the susceptibility pattern stays similar over time, but is so immensely frustrating to families when you know the germ and you, you know the susceptibilities, but you can't get rid of it. 
And where is it coming from? So the notion uh, around that time was that bacteria could ascend into the bladder as they normally would to produce cystitis, but they actually could not only attach, um, which normally leads to the, the surface epithelium just kind of popping off, right? It leads to this apoptosis and just the bladder layer sloughs off. But then the bacteria could get underneath and replicate within these cells and form these, these pods or these bacterial communities. And then they could flux out again when the antibiotics were gone. So there's been evidence for, for these types of communities uh, being seen in some of the shed cells in patients who have um, persistent urinary tract infection. And I think the reason that this notion hasn't gained more traction is it doesn't help me know what to do. Uh, I think that the closest you can come to knowing what to do about this is uh, A, treat with antibiotics forever, or B, try and treat with an antibiotic that maybe gets into the cells, which generally the antibiotics that we use for UTI don't. At any rate, um, this uh, young adult with the Mitrofenov had a culture that day that I saw her, and it came back and looked like this. And so here I was as a, a young faculty uh, in urology, urology's doctor expert who was internationally renowned for these uh, remarkable repairs and um, fixes in some of the most desperate and already reconstructed patients uh, was sending this patient with this antibiogram, which uh, you know obviously is resistant to ampicillin, resistant to third generation cephalosporins, resistant to ciprofloxacin, resistant to gentamicin, and resistant to trimethoprim sulfa. On further testing, it was revealed that this bug was, was susceptible to nitrofurantoin, which I thought was just great. Um, and and uh, again, the, the humility uh, comes back. Uh, she's allergic to nitrofurantoin, has a horrible rash and can't take it. So then you're left um, with very little to offer. And so it turns out that within a matter of months, the bug that she had was published uh, as having been detected in healthy patients around the globe. And so when providers of you know, adult women with uh, uncomplicated cystitis were coming in with antibiograms like I just showed you, uh, prescribers around the globe took notice. And that led to the discovery of a single strain or clone of bacteria that was reshaping uh, the epidemiology of UTI and has really uh, led to uh, reshaping how we think about gram-negative infections. Building a better superbug. So this superbug we call sequence type 131. Here's how you build it. You take an E. coli from the branch of the, the family tree known as the axis of evil. And it's called the axis of evil because on the chromosome there are many virulence factors uh, that allow the bacteria to live outside the intestine in the urinary tract. There are cytotoxins, there are alternate adhesins, fibers for attaching, capsules, all kinds of nastiness on the chromosome. 
and that's bad enough. And that's really what we had discovered in the 70s and 80s, that, that 80% of UTI across the globe were, were produced by a small handful of these clones from the axis of evil of the E. coli family tree. SD131 was a new, obscure, really not ever seen before member of that part of the tree. And it had some virulence factors. But really what, what happened that launched it to um, infamy was that it developed a stable mutation on the chromosome conferring resistance to Cipro, to fluoroquinolones. So I think in a way, the emergence of fluoroquinolone and the spread of its use in the 80s and 90s set the stage for this superbug. At least it's a narrative that makes sense. But SD131 didn't stop there. It went further and acquired a plasmid with an enzyme, an ESBL, extended spectrum beta-lactamase, that takes third generation cephalosporins and just cuts them, cuts the beta-lactam ring like a pair of scissors. And so now our most beloved uh, cephalosporins are off the table, leaving us with um, nasty drugs like piperacillin tazobactam and carbapenems, which of course are IV. And for good measure, these plasmids tend to have additional genes, so you're resistant to gentamicin and or Bactrim as well. So the PO options are severely impaired. And this is what it looks like when you map it out a different way. Instead of with shapes, you use uh, arrows. And I just want to remind you that this enzyme that has reshaped gram-negative epidemiology is in a, in a class called Class A. Uh, it's obscure, and this only matters in that these enzymes, class A, and CTXM is the one we're talking about, this ESBL, is different from class C, which is known as AMPC, which uh, is notorious for causing the inducible resistance in the lesser pathogens like serratia, uh, proteus, uh, Providencia, Citrobacter, Enterobacter, the so-called spice organisms, the ones that are a little tricky to identify resistance in the laboratory because this is a chromosomal property that turns on only in specific circumstances. The class A, SP131 ESBL, is on all the time. You can use Piptazo for class A, but you use Cefepine for class C. And that's what cefepine is all about, by the way. I just like to throw that in. Really, that's its raison d'etre. That's why we developed it, uh, is the fourth generation cephalosporin works against these inducible class C enzymes. So the patient came to see me in her, in her history, um, and I have cultures for her going back, I don't know, I think this is probably a 13-year span. And these are all the E. coli that she had had cultured. So this shows you a couple things about these patients. They get a lot of infections. It may be with the same bug, but they get cultured a lot because they're very attuned to symptoms and may end up coming in when they have mild symptoms and end up getting treated for asymptomatic bacteria just because that bug is there, it's there, it needs an antibiotic. So I'm going to tell you what we did for her uh, or to her. Um, to try and give some relief. So this period of infections, these were ESBL. And eventually after, oh, a few years, uh, we were able to battle back uh, and get her colonized with a different strain. Uh, one of the more traditional strains, it's still nasty, but not resistant to 
the third generations or multi-drug resistant at all. And uh, this binary computer data uh, shows the picture. Uh, these these uh, coded isolate uh, susceptibility antibiograms just show that they are resistant to most of the antibiotics, and these are corresponding to the red areas. And now for the last several years, she has been less symptomatic and continues to have, as her resident E. coli, a less resistant bug. Uh, I think for infectious disease doctors, um, so that we don't become a, a, a dying breed, we have to become more uh, scientific in how we uh, track, record, and visualize data about uh, patients. This is another patient that I have with her current UTIs. Uh, I think it just, it's nice to put these things together so you can see a pattern, a longitudinal history about the different bugs that patients have. Because otherwise, I find it, it, you tend to, you know, you're kind of like this Tom Hanks character on Saturday Night Live, Mr. Short-Term Memory. He's, he's on a game show, and his, his partner is Tony Randall, and every time he turns and sees Tony Randall, he's like, Tony Randall! You know, and then he goes back to feeling well. The point is that um, it's possible to respond to infections in individual patients that way. And so having this visualization of their history, of their track record, um, is really uh, valuable in helping you know where you've been. So what we ended up doing for her was to put her on antibiotics for a long time and just not letting her foot off the gas. And that means trying to find an agent Ideally, it would have been nitroferantonin because nitroferantonin is, is excreted in the urine. It's wonderful. It leaves the body through the organ that you want to treat. And it doesn't have this selective pressure on the intestinal flora. But the alternatives that we used for her were phosphomycin. And one of the others that I've used for other patients is minocycline. You need a workhorse agent for these patients. Find one drug, pick it, and stick to it and use it for a long time. Uh, it will interrupt a cycle. It will improve quality of life with very little uh, detriment or collateral damage to the intestinal flora. And then when the inevitable breakthrough infection pops up, you have to play whack-a-mole. And then you have to go hit that. And then ideally, you go back to your baseline antibiotic rather than rotating or cycling through. Albeit for patients who have certain types of pathology, where every time they put their catheter in, uh, they may be putting in a new bug, you really need to think about the hygiene in those patients. But I think having one drug and sticking to it, one of these drugs that's in the what I've come to as the, the holy trinity of multidrug-resistant infections, nitrofurantoin, phosphomycin, and minocycline. I won't talk about bladder washes. And this is the whack-a-mole, it's the episodic treatment when something breaks through, you have them go to their, um, to their local lab to be tested and you get them on an agent uh, as soon as you can. So it's having your backbone agent and then having the empiric breakthrough agent in case they do become symptomatic on your, on your backbone suppressive agent. And it's really this backbone suppressive agent that's kind of paving the road, hopefully to a, a brighter future of better quality of life, less infections, and less scenarios where uh, they are breaking through without a plan, and they are going to see whichever provider in whichever ambulatory setting is available with potentially a resistant bug that 
uh, that provider may not have experience with and may have this urge to over-treat, potentially to treat with IV. Uh, and so trying to come up with this, with this plan that they take with them and that is coordinated with the urologist surgical plan was really central to trying to provide stewardship, not by using less antibiotics, but by using a lesser antibiotic for a longer time. And I think uh, this approach can reduce the risk of these, these episodes that tend to blow up into a, into a febrile infection uh, leading to hospitalization and IV antibiotics. This is uh, phospomycin, and I just want to call attention to it because I think it's something that um, we've talked about in the ambulatory setting. Uh, it was approved in Europe as a single dose treatment for community-associated cystitis. Uh, it comes in a sachet, it comes in a little packet, and it's powder, and you take the three grams and you, and you pour it into a glass of water. And it has a very pleasant lemony flavor um, and is actually pretty well tolerated and it's effective. The problem is it's expensive and we don't have a lot of experience using it and there are no safety, safety and efficacy data for children under 12. Nonetheless, in the patient who is nitrofurantoin um, allergic or nitrofurantoin resistant, phosphomycin can be a critical uh, uh, ally in trying to restore sanity by uh, suppressing recurrent MDROs. And minocycline, again, is probably the, is the cheapest of these agents and has retained activity against even some of the most nasty bugs in some of the most nasty places in the world. Uh, and this is a study from India showing that it has retained activity against ESBLs and E. coli and Bugsiella. So the breakdown is minocycline is pretty cheap. Uh, these are costs for, you know, one 50-kilogram child, uh, hospital acquisition costs. And you can see that phosphomycin gets pretty expensive. So I'm out of time. Uh, I want to say that stewardship isn't just about less antibiotics. It can be about more antibiotics. In this case, with the recurrent MDRO infection, it's about using the lesser antibiotics like nitrofurantoin, minocycline, phosphomycin that don't have uh, uh, a liver excretion pathway, so it doesn't go out and trash the intestinal flora. It is focused on the organ that we're trying to treat and reduces collateral damage elsewhere. But use them aggressively. Use them for four weeks at a time, for three months at a time, to break the cycle and to perhaps allow recovery from the ravages of recurrent MDRO infection. Thank you for your attention, and I would remind you that antimicrobial stewardship is microbiome stewardship.